Well, open your Bibles to the book of Daniel this morning, Daniel chapter 11. I had Nathan read two verses because that's really the introduction to this massive prophecy here. And I didn't want him or you reading through the whole thing because we're going to walk through it verse by verse this morning. In the Bible, God declares that He knows the future. He knows how it begins because He was there. In fact, He started the clock, Genesis 1 tells us. He knows how each segment of history or time is going to go because He he orders it all. He, He ordains everything. And he obviously also knows the end because he's determined it. Uh, I think one of the clearest verses in the Bible on all of that is Isaiah chapter 46. Remember this and be assured. Recall to mind, you transgressors. What are they to recall to mind? Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, this is what he's declaring in the end from the beginning, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. That's between the beginning and the end. What he counsels, what he plans, what he purposes shall stand. It's fixed And he will accomplish all that he desires in the midst of that. And the book of Daniel is one of those places where God declares exactly what he plans. In the book of Daniel, God declares the future before it it happens. And and it does so in amazing detail. And for a believer, while a lot of people are interested in knowing things before it happens, for a believer, the book of Daniel is more than something to titillate our curiosity because the author of the Bible is declaring those things to us. So for us, the book of Daniel is a book of promises, not just predictions. The entire Bible reveals God's redemptive plan, but but the book of Daniel unveils the future of the history of the world, the return of Christ, the setting up of His uh, earthly and then eternal kingdom. It's often called the end times, But for us, it's the beginning of what awaits every Christian. So the book of Daniel, like Revelation, unveils or makes visible unseen things. It shows us what's really happening in the world, what will really happen in the future so we can be aware of it. And Bible prophecy is is not an expert opinion. It's a divine disclosure of what is taking place and what will take place. And that's the prophecy part. Prophecy simply means the foretelling of a future event. And when some people hear that, the foretelling of a future event, they they think of a a psychic uh, or maybe a more sophisticated predictor like Nostradamus, uh, these people who claim that they're able to see into the future but they often speak in vague riddles and shrouded assertions that, about what may happen. You know, if when you listen to them, it, it's kind of like whenever you read a fortune cookie, you'll meet a tall, dark stranger today, and then if you look hard enough the rest of the day, you'll eventually find what you're looking for. That's, that's what unbelievers do when these type of prognosticators. That's not what God means by prophecy. Biblical prophecy is what must take place because God has decreed it, what will take place, because He is the Lord of history, and it's accurately declared beforehand. It's a precise foretelling of exactly what will come to pass. It's a divine look into the future. And so when we look at these prophetic sections like we'll do today in the book of Daniel, you should think of two things, two words, an unveiling and a foretelling. You wouldn't know these things. In Daniel's day, if it wasn't for God, and it's a foretelling of what's going to happen. Now, there's a bonus application. It's not just the future, but your future, which is why you must pay attention to the God who reveals it, because He knows the unseen things, including the unseen things in your life. How is it going in the unseen areas of your heart and and life? 
whatever you think is unseen to everyone else, God knows it. And if God can see the unseen future, don't you think He knows the unseen hurt of your heart or even the sin in your life? And if He can foretell the future and ensure it comes to pass, isn't He powerful enough to change your future through Christ? He is. And if He cares enough to reveal it beforehand, don't you think He cares for you right right now? He does. And He has given us a trustworthy message in this book so we can know and prepare. Now, Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 is the final vision of the book. And it's going to take us several sermons to get through it because it's a a large chunk of Scripture. Chapter 10, we saw last week, which is the preparation of Daniel for this this actual prophecy. And the actual prophecy comes in chapter 11. We'll look at that today. And then chapter 12 is the final encouragement. I showed you this last week, but here are the three scenes. There's Daniel's personal preparation, which stretches all the way through the first verse of chapter 11. The second scene, which we'll look at today, Daniel's vision of the future. And that covers two sections. Verses 2 through 35, which is the immediate future from, from Cyrus or Darius to Antiochus, Epiphanes. And then verses 36 through chapter 4 is the far future, which reaches all the way to the second coming of Christ. And then we'll end at a later time with God's final revelation, which is in chapter 12. We'll look at chapter 11 today. And as I said, even in the introduction, I'll warn you as you look ahead, if you, if you have looked ahead, this is a slog through history. Much of this chapter reads like one of the genealogies of the Bibles. You know, those, those favorite sections that you probably just skim right over. This king rises and falls, and then another rises and falls, and so on and so on. And it goes about that for, for about 20 verses. Uh, it, it, but just like a genealogy, God has a profound purpose in providing it. And I'll show you that in the, in the end. And so after the vision of chapter 9 about Israel's return to the land, it's not going too well. We learned this last week. In two short generations, many of the Jewish people were quite happy in Babylon. Only a small fraction of them have returned to the land. And even those that did, when they returned to the land, they faced a devastated city, no temple, a lot of of opposition from the Samaritans and others who were in and around Jerusalem. And so Daniel goes to prayer two years later. And after a purposeful delay in answering, God shows Daniel there's something that even more frightening to be, to be concerned about, something that he didn't, wasn't aware of, another battle that, that rages. He shows Daniel the great enemy was not the Babylonians or the Persians or the Samaritans. It, it, it was evil forces in a realm that Daniel couldn't even see. In fact, a sphere he had no control over. In fact, Daniel wasn't even aware that it was going on, this spiritual battle, before chapter 10. And even after... The angel reveals it to him in the delay. Daniel's not told to do anything about it, but it takes his breath away. He has to be strengthened three times before he gets this this message that God wanted him to record in chapter 11. And through that, Daniel learns that God is in control of the spiritual realm as well. Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is, in, that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come, Ephesians 1, 21. And so with that knowledge, Daniel is now ready to receive more prophecy in chapter 11 and, and 12. And in chapter 11, the Lord gives his faithful prophet details about the troubling future. That's what we will call it, God's prophecy of troubling times to come. He tells him how it will go in the near future in the Persian and Greek empires. And he gives him detail about uh, gives him details about the little horn of chapter 8, that's Antiochus Epiphanes. And then he reveals details about the the far future, that's Antiochus, and then he gives details about the the end. Chapter 11 is actually a parallel of chapter 8. You remember chapter 8? You have the, the four beasts that are rising up out of the, the sea. Well, chapter 11 zooms in on two of those beasts and gives a lot more detail. 
The focus is primarily on the empires of Persia and Greece in the first half of the, the, the chapter. And it ends with the end of the Roman Empire. But that's because while prophecy is historically accurate, it is also divinely particular, meaning that it doesn't contain all of the history of the period. I mean, everything that is recorded in the Bible is historically accurate. It's been proven over and over, just like this section of the book of Daniel. But not everything that happened in history during that section of, of time is recorded here. It's accurate, but it's intentionally selective. It only presents the part that God wants to communicate, the parts that His people need to hear. And that's the case in chapter 11. This additional detail given in chapter 11 is about the rulers of the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great is gone and how they relate to one another. But chapter 11 skips over a number of, of people not directly related to Israel's future. It's also, it also skips periods. Um, for the same reason. After we get to verse 35, God skips over all of history uh, until what the angel calls the last days. So beyond, uh, beyond Antiochus, there's no mention of, uh, of the first coming of, of the Messiah. There's no mention of the church or the present age or any details about the modern times. It's one of those prophetic valleys. So, so we get to see the end of the Persian Empire. We get to see the, the Greek Empire, how it splinters, how Antiochus Epiphanes rises. And then there's nothing. It just, it just goes into a valley. And then it picks back up again at the, the end times with the, with the Antichrist at the, at the end. Because filling in those gaps was not God's purpose in Daniel's time. And that's where the second portion of the prophecy begins in verse 36. And then chapter 12 gives us information about the Great Tribulation, the Millennial Kingdom, all of which the book of Revelation picks up on and fills into an even, even greater detail. So if you put all that together, verses 2 through 35 zooms in on this, the end of the Persian Empire, the splintering of the third beast of Greece, and then after explaining how they'll rise and the battle that happens between them, the real reason the vision is given is in verses 36 through 45, the coming kingdom of one wicked ruler who after consolidating his power will pour out his wrath on God's city and God's people. And then the whole vision is wrapped up in chapter 12 with the promise of the resurrection and, and God's, God's restoration of his people. So after... It takes an entire chapter to prepare, to prepare his prophet for the vision that's so sweeping and so weighty, Daniel is ready to, to, to receive it. Let's look at the first uh, prophecy of troubling times that relates to the, to the near future. And, and in it, he details the future of Persia, of Greece, of Egypt and Syria, and the future of Antiochus Epiphanes. Look, if you would, if, at verse... All of this is history uh, to us, but future to Daniel. So we have the benefit of actually comparing, did this actually come to pass? Verse 2, And now I'll tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches, riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now the earthly subject matter of the vision has been given to Daniel before, like I told you, in, in chapter 8. But this revelation goes much further than chapter 8. It reveals future that Daniel has not received yet. And the angel starts by saying the same thing that Daniel did in chapter 10. He says, now I'm going to tell you the truth. Just as the reality of the, the spiritual war, the, the, the angelic battles that take place, was so amazing to Daniel that he had to state... The message I'm telling you is true. In chapter 10, the angel is about to give such a detailed prophecy that he also states up front, this, this is true. I mean, it's like saying, listen, what I'm going to tell you is so amazing in your sight that, that you're going to have a hard time believing it. But it's accurate. It's true. And just like God anticipates scoffers to question the book of Daniel this prophecy is so precise that it's been attacked all the way back since the 3rd century. 
most ardently by a heathen writer named Porphyry who claimed that the book was too accurate and so it had to have been written after all of this took place. John Walvoord noted that 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 attack is what led Jerome to write his classic commentary on the book of Daniel, which became one of the most significant works of the church fathers of any of prophetic writings in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, just a small example of how God uses evil for, for good. But when you look at a detailed prophecy like this, the bottom line for us is there are two options. When you approach prophecy, no matter how detailed it is, either you believe that God knows the future and He's able to foretell it, and and if so, then the book of Daniel is not difficult to grasp, or you don't believe that. And if that's the case, you might as well throw out the whole thing, because if God cannot foretell what's going to happen with heathen kings, then how does He know the prophecies about the Messiah or the cross? Or how does He know anything about heaven? You can't pick and choose what part of the Bible you want to believe. You must take what God declares or chuck the whole thing to your peril. And as genuine believers, we don't, we don't do that even when the information is hard to hear. And chapter 11 would have been hard to hear for Daniel and hard to hear for the Israelites because God prophesies that Israel would experience conflict after conflict after conflict and, 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 and no rest. And that conflict begins with the, with the current rule of the Persians. Look at verse 2 again. He says, Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. The angel says there will be four more kings in the Persian Empire following Cyrus. That's who's reigning right now. And it will end with a king named Xerxes, who is the one mentioned in the book of Esther. King Cyrus died in 529 B.C., and history confirms exactly what is prophesied here. Following Cyrus, his son Cambyses uh, takes the throne, and then Pseudo-Smyrtus, and then Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, and the fourth king after Cyrus would be rich and would make war against Greece. That's King Xerxes. Look at you what at verse 2 again. Look at what he does. Then the fourth will gain more riches than all of them, and as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And the angel now tells Daniel the climax of Persian rule. The reason that God is telling us about the rulers of Persia is because he was concerned about Xerxes. There are other ones that follow Xerxes. Artaxerxes of Ezra and Nehemiah, but Xerxes is the one that God zooms in on here, but he was the pinnacle of power because what he's going to do with this power turns the page of the prophetic timeline from Persia to Greece. He takes all of that and he, he engages Greece. It ends disastrously. And because of that, Greece will return the favor 150 years later. Xerxes gathered, the history tells us, the largest army in the ancient world. Hundreds of naval vessels, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. He spent four years preparing for this war, and in 480 BC he attacked Greece and was smashed in defeat. And 150 years later, Greece comes for revenge. Look if you would at verse 3. It says, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now we've heard of this king before in chapter 8. Daniel says after the second kingdom of, of Persia, the third kingdom will rise and it will have a single mighty king. This is the future of Greece. And he'll do as he pleases. This is speaking of Alexander the Great that no doubt you read about in your history book. Long before your history book was written, God wrote about him in the Bible. And he sweeps through the land with little resistance. In chapter 8, we've already been told about this king. In chapter 8, he is pictured as the one-horned goat rising from the, from the sea, which was stronger than the two-horned ram of Persia. And the goat was so hard-charging and so fast, it doesn't even seem like he touches the ground as he sweeps across the ancient world. And In the center of this goat's head was a single horn. He's like a unicorn goat because there was only one ruler, one head of this empire which is a description of the kingdom of Greece and Alexander the Great to a T. 
just 20 years old, Alexander assumed the throne from his father, and by the age of 30, in 10 short years, he carved out one of the largest empires the world has ever known that spanned from Greece to India. He was undefeated in battle and stands alone as one of history's most successful military commanders. And because of his lengthy wars and wounds and licentious living, he dies at age 33. So just as soon as he rises, he goes off the scene, which is exactly what Daniel is told here. And here in chapter 11, Daniel gets more detail about what happens after he dies. Look at verse 4. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to, toward the four points of the compass through not his own descendants. He won't have an heir that will sit on the throne nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside him. So the angel says, he will rise quickly and then fall, and his kingdom will be divided toward the four winds. Daniel 8 receives the prophecy, uh, and if you remember, after that single horn is broken off, there are a number of other horns that rise on, on this goat. Replaced with that one. And chapter 11 tells us who these horns are. Alexander will arise mighty, but it'll not last long, just as history tells us. And when he dies, God says his kingdom would be divided up into the four points uh, of the compass, meaning that it's going to be divided into, into four parts, which is exactly what happened. Alexander's kingdom was not ruled by his offspring, but four generals. And he didn't even get to choose. And history tells us that those four generals were Ptolemy, who ruled over Egypt and Palestine, so he would be the one in the south. Seleucus, who ruled over Syria and Mesopotamia, that would be to the north of, of Israel. Cassander, who ruled over Macedonia and Greece toward the west. And Lysimachus, who ruled over Asia Minor. The focus of Daniel here is on only two of those four rulers. So Alexander broken in four, but the Bible only talks details about, about two because only those two, the, the king in the north and the king in the south, only those two kings actually affect Israel because Syria to the north and Egypt to the south, the land bridge between them is the beautiful land, the land of Israel. And with that introduction... The Seleucid kings in the north and the Ptolemies in the south, the angel starts this genealogy of war. <laughs> Look if you would at verse 5. It says, Then the king of the south will go strong, and along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain domination, his domain will be a great dominion indeed. King of the South, according to history, is Ptolemy Soter. The other king who shall be strong above him is the king of Sirius, uh, Sirius Seleucus Nicator. Those two kings control Egypt and Syria with Israel caught in between, which is why they're called the king of the north, king of the south. Even their name is a nod to God's people. And God only focuses on them because they battle in the beautiful land. And so for the next 150 years and 16 verses, these two kings go back and forth in successive wars involving Israel. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 8 through 6? You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. He tells that to the disciples about the future. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying what's recorded in Daniel 11 here, what you see on the news every day, what's going on in Afghanistan right now, is the norm for human history. That's what he's saying. Since the garden, wars come, nations rise, nations fall. There's war that's happening. After Russia, there's China. After China, there's whoever, whatever. And Jesus says, don't be frightened. 
That's not the end. But the beginning of the labor before the great war comes, the war that's coming in tribulation. And the angel is detailing a portion of that experience to Daniel for the same reason, so that Israel would not fear, because God knows every single one of these kings in the north and in the south and and, and all of the, the, their, their goings and, and comings, and he declares that to Daniel and to Israel ahead of time, so they would not fear, which is exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples in Matthew 24. Dale Ralph Davis summarizes God's purpose well. He said, From Xerxes to Seleucus IV, we have an overflowing dossier of lies and schemes and conspiracies, of victories and disasters and tragedies, of never-ending confusion of wars and political turmoil. It's like Ecclesiastes of ancient history in chapter 11. And it is, if you read it. Verse 4, his kingdom will be broken and divided. Verse 6, uh, she shall not hold on to strength of her arm, but she'll be given over. Verse 9, and he shall return to his land. And verse 11, uh, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Verse 12, and he will not remain strong. Verse 14, violent ones among your own people will rise, but they will fall. Verse 18, but the commander shall put an end to his arrogance. And on and on and on. And it will continue on and on and on until... God's appointed time. Ian Dugan said, The tide in the affairs of men coming in and going out accomplishes precisely nothing. (laughs) The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to permanent rest. He says it's like the tide coming in and going out. There's one power that, that gets stronger than the other, and then they recede, and then another one comes in. He said, on the one hand, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all their toils? You see, it's like the genealogies. And Adam begat Seth, and he died. And Seth begat Enosh, and he died. And Enosh begat Kenan, and and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died, like one continuous story of human empires trying to gain what they cannot obtain. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. How maddening, how empty to put your hope in kings and kingdoms. But that's not where history is left, in the hands of kings and kingdoms. Because here is a God who's declaring all of that history while it is yet future. Because while mankind is frustrated and futile, the Lord accomplishes His purposes within that history. You hear me? Within the history, within the death of Seth and Enosh and Kenan, God accomplishes His purposes. Within the death of Christ, He accomplishes His purposes. Within the rise and fall of empires, even the ones that seem to be grinding Israel and God's people in their gears, God accomplishes His purposes. Look, if you would, at verse 16. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and not one will abide to withstand him, but he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. There's a reference to the land of Israel. So where Daniel 8 skips over 150 years of wrangling between the Syrian Seleucids and the Egyptian Ptolemies, uh, chapter 11 zooms in and explains this gap to us. And this period, as I said, covers 150 years and ends with the little horn of chapter 8, who's Antiochus Epiphanes, who rose in about 175 B.C. and reigned until 164 B.C. He's a significant figure. And this evil king will be used by God in history to purify his people. Look, if you would, at verse 20. It says, then in his place, after one king, the tide of one king goes out, another one comes in. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. And within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Dr. Todd Dykstra notes the details here are very important because Antiochus the Great was followed by his son, who was followed by another son, Antiochus IV, who's Epiphanes, the one 
of the Maccabean Revolt. He was the notorious persecutor of the Jewish people. The, the word here for oppressor means exactor of tribute, one who collects taxes. So Antiochus III's son heavily taxes the people who refuse to pay, or so he can pay tribute to Rome. But as the end of verse 20 indicates, history tells us he doesn't die in battle. He's poisoned by his treasurer who wanted the throne for himself. The jewel of the kingdom here is a reference to Jerusalem and temple. And it's temple. Look if you would at verse 21. And in his place, a despicable person will arise. Here's Antiochus Epiphanes. On whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now here's the reason for all the tedious detail up to this point. Just like Daniel 8 zooms in on the evil earthly king by skipping this detail, Daniel 11 goes through all of those kings to bring us to this point. Chapter 8 zooms in on the, the final king called the, the small horn, uh, whose focus is on the beautiful land, meaning Israel and and chapter 11 does as well, uses the same terminology. The verses 21 through 35, you have the future here of Antiochus. Epiphanes means glorious. It's a title that he gave himself because he desired to be regarded as God. He rose to power through bribery. His nephew was supposed to be heir to the throne, but he weasels in. He grows extremely great. And he was heinously wicked and had a particular hatred for God's people, which is why he's, he's identified this way here as a despicable person. And the book of Maccabees gives us an idea of how wicked he is, but Daniel tells us here, look if you would at verse 28. It says, Then he'll return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set again against the Holy Covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. So after a military campaign in Egypt, Antiochus, headed back to Syria, stops in Israel and he desecrates the land. All this is recorded in history. It's recorded that he marched on Jerusalem. He attacked the city. He struck the temple. He slaughtered many people in the city. He killed 80,000 people in the city. Men and women and children, 40,000 Jewish prisoners are taken again, being sold into slavery. Now imagine Daniel being strengthened three times to get this message about the spiritual battle that's taking place. And just when he gets his legs under him, God tells him about the earthly battle that's, that's going to happen. Antiochus robbed the temple of its gold and silver and, and squelched a Jewish revolt. But what happens next is, is fascinating and also revolting. Look if you go to verse 29. It says, At the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Katim will come against him, Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. This is one of the most detailed sections of this prophecy. And let me just read you a historical summary because I can't improve on it. See if you can pick up the, the verses that we just read. History says Antiochus attacked Egypt again. So he goes back south again. He goes back to Egypt again through Israel, bent on destroying a new coalition that's there. But this time Egypt has Rome on its side. The ships of Katim were an ancient name for Cyprus, which is probably a reference to the Roman Empire, the Roman army and its power. And so finding out that Antiochus is attacking Egypt, the Roman Senate sends Antiochus a letter forbidding him to engage in war with Egypt. And when Antiochus asked for time to consider, which he really didn't have any intent on doing, the emissary that brought the letter had a, had a stick 
and he drew a circle around the feet of Antiochus in, in the dirt, with Antiochus still in the middle of the circle. And he told him that he had to give him an answer before he stepped out of the circle. That's how long he would give him. And so Antiochus had to submit to Rome's demands or else be considered at war with Rome. Admitting his defeat, he returned to his own land just as the angel foretells here. Now listen to verse 29 through 30 again. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, Egypt. But this last time, it will not turn out the way that it did before. He won't have any success. For ships of Katim will come against him, that's Rome. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return. He's dejected and being enraged at the Holy Covenant, he'll take action. So when he comes back north, he has to come through Israel. And when he comes through Israel, going back to Syria, Antiochus takes out his anger on God's people and God's temple. He also gave special favors to traitors, those who forsake the... Holy Covenant. But it was his attack on God's temple that grieved Daniel and the people the most. Look if you would at verse 31. He says, Forces with him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, we've heard about this in chapter 8, but here's an echoing detail. 167 B.C., Antiochus issued an order that forbade the regular worship of Yahweh. And the sacrifices in the temple ceased. Even worse than that, Antiochus erected his own altar on top of the Jewish altar in the temple where he sacrificed pigs to the Greek god, little g, Zeus. And this wicked king didn't just drink from the vessels of the temple like Belshazzar he had the audacity to injure the holy place, the most holy place on earth, and defile it with desecrating worship. That's why he's called a despicable person. And he removed all the customs of Israel and forbade them to keep God's law. He made circumcision against the law. And anyone that was caught circumcising their children was strangled. He burned all the scrolls of the Old Testament and sentenced to death anyone who had a copy of the Word of God. He built gymnasiums in Jerusalem with all their perversions and erected shrines all over the place. And chapter 8 tells us he specifically did that so the Jews may forget the law and revoke all ordinance of it. It was a specific attack on God and His people. And the angel tells Daniel there's going to be two responses from the people whenever this happens. Look at you at verse 32. By smooth words... He will turn godless, uh, will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But, here's the contrast, the other type of people, the people who know their God will, distra- will display strength and take action. So just like today. There'll be two reactions amongst people who claim to be gods. Two reactions to Antiochus' sacrilege. Just like there'll be Two reactions to the future tribulation period. Those who are described as godless will compromise and act wickedly. But those who know their God will display, display their strength and act. There's one thing. I just listened to a clip this past week where John MacArthur spoke to about a thousand high school students. And they asked him, facing what we're facing in our day, what... Dr. MacArthur, do you say that, that we need? And he said that's, a, that's an easy answer. What you need is conviction. You need some non-negotiables. You need convictions that are unmoved by anything that you see, anything that you hear, and those convictions have to be rooted in the Word of God because if you don't have those convictions now, when an, an Antiochus type of person comes or the things like an Antiochus does comes upon you, you're going to find yourself wavering. And there are two reactions here. Those who didn't have conviction and they wavered and then those who did 
And history tells us about Judas Maccabeus who falls into that second category, one with conviction. And verse 33 speaks of him. Look at verse 33. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. There was a priest during the time of Antiochus, these dark days, named Mattathias. And he had five sons, and one of them was named Judas Maccabeus. His nickname was the Hammer. And when Antiochus desecrated the temple and defiled God's ceremonies, Mattathias refused to submit and... He fled to the mountains with his sons and started a a revolt that eventually grew into an all-out rebellion, and many joined. And these faithful Jews recaptured the temple in 165 B.C. and cleansed it. And the celebration of Hanukkah is what the Jewish people still celebrate today, referencing that moment. But the angel foretold Daniel 150 years earlier what, what would happen. If you would have the end of verse 34, now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. History tells us that that victory was short-lived because the nation as a whole was in rebellion against God and the angel says many will fall, meaning die. They would be persecuted and even martyred. Many will join in their in, them, uh, in hypocrisy, meaning that many will join the revolt with, with mingled motives, and that was eventually the downfall with the Herodian dynasty that rose in 37 B.C., which is Herod that was reigning whenever Christ was born, that dynasty. And you sit there and you listen to all of that, and you say, wow, that's a lot of detail, that's a lot of information... How do you know all of that? How do you remember all of that? I read it in books just like you would. But really what you're thinking is, is so what? I mean, why did God give such a detailed prophecy? Why does he run through king after king after king? I mean, is this really helpful for me today? What's the purpose And like normal, God anticipates your question and he answers it in verse 35. Look, if you would, at verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. You know what that says? It says Antiochus Epiphanes is not the end. It says that the king that comes in verse 36 is not Antiochus Epiphanes, which we'll look at next time. Verse 35 is a reminder of our three recurring themes that span the entire book. God foretells history, He controls kings and kingdoms, and He delivers His faithful ones who trust in Him. And verse 35 tells us how God promises to do that in particular. He says the fierceness that's going to come upon you is is for purity. He makes a guarantee here for the future, for posterity, and then He shows us that the focus of history is always God's people. I mean, the purpose of all of this trouble, all of these wars and suffering, the reason that God brought all these kings and and Antiochus was was to refine the Jewish people. That's what verse 35 says. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Lived out, applied through evil kings in history. Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there? whom his father does not discipline. For they, that's our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that's God, disciplines us for our good. Listen, so that we may share his holiness. And he goes on to say all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. If you were a Jew in the midst of this, do you think this would be joyful? This would not be joyful. 
It's not joyful, but sorrowful, Hebrews 12 says. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight the paths of your feet so that the limb which is lame out of joint may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The the knees that are buckling under the under the pressure that's coming. God is bringing the pressure for your purity. God is bringing the pressure right now on the church for purity. That's the purpose. So don't waver and don't buckle. Have conviction. And God brings troubled times to purify His people. He did it with Israel and He may be doing it even with you personally today. And there's always a goal in mind. Look at Israel's goal in verse 35. So some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, to purge, to make them pure. Watch this, until the end time. You know what that says? It's going to continue. This is going to continue even beyond Antiochus for Israel until the end time. These wars and things that are going to come against the Jewish people are going to keep happening for their purity to preserve a remnant until the end time. The fierce turmoil was to prepare them for the second coming of Christ. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans? You and I, primarily Gentiles in the church, are are to provoke them to jealousy. And Daniel here says that the persecutions that come, Hitler, whatever comes next, is to purge and to purify God's people, to prepare them for the second coming of Jesus Christ. My friend Boaz says... If when Messiah comes the second time, it's Jesus, I'll have no problem bowing the knee to Him. You said He's come the, uh, come the first time and He'll be coming again. I don't know. My answer is always the same. If you don't bow the knee to Him the first time, then you won't be able to do that the second time. And Israel's trouble will will finally come to a close when the Messiah returns again. But I also want you to notice that God makes a comforting note here for posterity. God's not left their suffering open-ended. There's a guarantee that's here. Notice what else it says in verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. There are two references to time here. Until the end, and still to come a still to come appointed time. So the future list of king after king is now trumped with the words at the appointed time. Both of those are an indication that God's in control. That's the guarantee. God's in control of all of these kings. He's in control of Antiochus. He's going to be in control of the Antichrist. It's not only purposeful to purify and to preserve a people for God, but God is in control of the tide of human kings. They cannot wash upon the shore any farther. They cannot recede any farther. Antiochus will only be able to accomplish evil for a set period, and God sets boundaries on him that he can't go beyond. As horrible as it will be, evil will only operate within God's appointed time. And when that time is up, Antiochus will go off the scene as quickly as Belshazzar. When the Antichrist time is up, he'll go off the scene as quickly. And whenever you look around and you see how in the world are we going to get out of this, how is it ever going to be any better, with nothing but a thought, God can end it all. And it will be the same with the coming Antichrist that verse 36 and beyond references. And he's just as controlled. And God does all of this because he loves his people. I mean, I think if you stand back and you look at, at a section like chapter 11, where it just runs through this list of all of these earthly kings that come and go and come and, come and go, I think one of the things that, that you see is that the focus is not on them, is it? It's on God's people. I mean, this chapter uh, tells us uh, the kings of history don't really matter much to the Lord at all. 
I mean, they each get a few verses and then they pass on to the next one. But the whole reason that they're even in the Bible is for God's people. And their kingdom and their wealth are only a footnote in biblical history. And even that, so as people can be encouraged. Even Alexander the Great is a passing little ruler who doesn't even have an heir who's going to sit on his throne. You see, the true treasure of history in God's eyes is His people. The ones that He promised to preserve, the ones that He's preserving even now. He purifies them. He preserves them. He came for them. He died for them. He orders all of history around them. He's coming again for them to set up His earthly kingdom. And the answer to so what is, and if God cares enough to reveal that much detail and even preserve it for you unto this day, do you not think that He cares about your soul and what's going on in your life? He does. He cares so much that He wants you to know the future before it comes. So if you don't know His Son, you can bow the knee to Him now and not be like Boaz if He doesn't do that before He perishes. And He also wants you to share that with with others. What an amazing time to be a Christian and have the gospel of Jesus Christ to be able to proclaim to the world and that you know a God who controls it all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, sec- the sections of scripture that, that in our humanness we can easily read over or become overwhelmed with. There's just too much detail there. And yet when we dig into them, they, they go down into the depths of, of the mine and they pull out nuggets of gold. Thank you, Lord, that You tell us, even though we're undeserving and vile and sinful, we, you you have made us the apple of your eye. You've washed us clean by your, your blood. You've given us your righteousness. We now stand before you, holy and beloved, blameless because of Jesus. And you'll preserve us until the day we see you face to face. You're coming for us again, even before you... You come for Israel. We praise you for that. Yet, Father, I pray even today, if there's someone discouraged, thinking that somehow you've forgotten the details of their life, I pray for someone who may be outside of Christ, that today would be the day they would bow the knee and believe. And I ask it all in Jesus' name.